All right. One of, um, one of my mentors told me a long time ago, he said, Kevin, when you get to the habit of, of, of teaching God's word, like God has this funny sense of humor. And as you're getting ready to teach on a, on a topic, on a subject, what God often does is a week before, he lets you experience that topic. He lets you, you know, experience that you can speak from that topic with authority. And now there are some weeks that this can be a really good thing. You know, when we're talking about, you know, intimacy in marriage, that makes for a good week. When we're talking about appreciating your pastor, you know, that, that week is a good week. Uh, here at Restoration Church, we started a series last week called Joy through the book of Philippians. And it just so happens that today's topic is on suffering. It's been a delightful week. Uh, next week, the topic's on death. So I'm going to let Jim Herring preach that one. Thanks, Jim. <laughs> you know, when we planted Restoration Church three years ago, I knew that I would step into this church planning phase, this, 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 this pastor phase, and I knew I would learn a lot, and I would just grow a ton. And one of the areas that I've, I've grown as a pastor that I've learned, and it's almost been a little bit surprising, is how much of my job is, dealt, is dealing with walking alongside people who are hurting, walking alongside people who are suffering, who are struggling, and, and, and there's just the reality of, of we live in a broken world and struggle and suffer is, is a regular part of our world. We've got people who are dealing with, with all sorts of mental anxiety, of, 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 of mental suffering, depression, anxiety, all these things that go inside of ourselves. There are others who are, who are suffering uh, what we would call heartache which is that, that deep pain that goes to the, the very deepest of our being. Different types of suffering, but suffering is a reality in our world. And this is one of the reasons why I love the Bible so much. Because the Bible isn't just a fairy tale. It isn't just a, a, a fairy tale where everything's happy and good and, and everything's wonderful. The Bible is real and deals with situations that you and I deal with. And they deal with situations like, like struggling and, and suffering. So in fact, if you pick up your Bible and you read the Psalms, you'll notice that one third of the Psalms deals with praise and adoration for who God is. God, you are wonderful. We love you. We praise you. And while there's a third of those psalms that are all dealing with adoration of God, there's also a third of those psalms that are called psalms of lament. These are people who are struggling, who are suffering, who are dealing with all sorts of circumstances, and they're coming to God saying, God, what are you doing? God, where are you? You see, when you and I begin to suffer and we start going through some hard times, these are the kinds of questions that we ask. Why, God? God, God, why? God, why are you allowing this to happen to me? Why, why me? Why, why now, God? And again, if we turn to the scriptures, the, 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 the idea of suffering is such a reality in the scriptures. There's a story you guys may know of the guy named Job. Job was a godly man by all accounts. And he experiences tremendous suffering. He loses everything. His family his job, his land. He loses everything. And his response to God is one of those questions that you and I would ask. 
Job says in Job chapter 3, verse 11, he says, Why did I not die at birth, come out from the womb, and expire? God, why was I even born? Jeremiah is an Old Testament prophet who also understood a life of suffering. And so he asked this same why question in Jeremiah 20. He says, why did I come out from the womb to see toil and sorrow and spend my days in shame? This is our response to struggling to suffer the why questions. Now, what many of us try and do, though, is is we don't like going through the pain. We don't like going through the, the, the hardship and the hurt. And so what we try to do is we try to avoid suffering at all costs. We try to protect ourselves. And so the way that plays out is we, we, we begin to hold people off. And we don't want to open ourselves up to other people and, and allow those close relationships. We don't want people to get to know us intimately because if they did, they might hurt us. And so we push people out and say, oh, hey, you know what? We've got to stay at a distance. I'm not going to let you in because I don't want to experience that hurt. Or we, we, we are afraid to take a risk. We won't take risks in life because if we take a risk, there's a chance we might crash and burn. So we just try and play as safe as we can so we can live this, this sheltered life and, and live in this safe little bubble. Trying to protect ourselves from every possible source of of suffering, which honestly ends up being the loneliest and the worst case of suffering there is. See, we live in this fallen world. And in this falling world, you have suffered. You possibly are suffering right now, or I will guarantee you, you will suffer. The question is not, will we suffer? The question is, when will we suffer? How will we suffer? How bad will our suffering be? How long will our suffering last? These are the questions. Now, I know there are some of you right now, and you're sitting there and you're saying, hey, don't you dare talk to me about suffering. Either out of this, this self-defense self because of the pain that you've experienced, or maybe out of self-righteousness. You're saying, don't you dare talk to me about suffering. You don't know what I've been through. Your suffering can't, can't pale, pales in comparison to what I've gone through. Who are you to talk to me about suffering? Listen, I don't want to demean anybody here. I don't want to diminish your suffering or try and compare suffering. But as we open up our Bibles to the book of Philippians, chapter 1, what I want to do is I want us just to be on the same level. I want us to be on the same understanding about the reality of suffering in our lives and suffering in our world. So if you have a Bible, we're going to be in Philippians chapter 1 today. If you need a Bible, just slip your hand up and uh, uh, someone will come and bring a Bible up, up to you. We started this series last week, a series called Joy, and we're going to be looking through the gospel of, or the book of Philippians, Paul's letter to the Philippian church. And Paul was a dude who knew all about suffering. In the, second, in the book of 2 Corinthians, Paul details what some of his sufferings looked like. He says five times, five times he was beaten with 39 lashes from a whip. He says, three times I was beaten with a rod. He says, once I was even stoned. Paul says, three times he was shipwrecked. And he spent one and a half days adrift at sea. 
He experienced danger from his own people. He experienced danger from strangers, stranger danger. He was often in, in, in hunger and thirst. And in fact, while Paul is writing this letter to the church at Philippi, he's sitting in prison, probably in Rome, and he's potentially facing an execution sentence for the cause of preaching Jesus Christ. So when we look at Philippians chapter 1, Paul is going to talk about something very unique. He's going to talk about the joy of suffering. And you hear that and you think it almost sounds like an oxymoron. An oxymoron is when you take two words that don't really seem to fit together, like they don't belong together. For example, jumble shrimp. Those two things just don't really sound like they fit. Um, Act naturally. You ever heard of a deafening silence? You ever heard of a, of a powerful servant? You ever heard of a short sermon? I mean, these are things that just don't go together. You kind of get the idea. And when we talk about the joy of suffering, it sounds like an oxymoron. Because when we think of joy, we think of, of, of something that takes place in pleasant times. We think of, we think of uh, good times, not difficult times. But you see, there's really, there's two ways for us to suffer. There's two ways for us to suffer. One way for us to suffer is complete purposelessly. No purpose behind it. Nothing good would be accomplished in us, and nothing good would be accomplished through us during that suffering. But Paul is going to write to us about another way to suffer. Suffering in a way that is purposeful, in a way that God could actually do something in us and through us. And this is what Paul calls the joy of suffering. So we want to look this morning at Philippians chapter 1 to see what we can learn from Paul about the joy of suffering. So in your Bible, Philippians chapter 1, we're going to look at starting in verse 12 and read through verse 18. You can follow along on the screen as well. And it says, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. So that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. And the former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. God's word for us today. Would you pray with me? God, we're thankful for this opportunity just to be here, to open up your word. God, thankful that we're not here just to hear a pastor's opinion on, on how life should work. But God, your word is going to speak today. So God, I pray that you would give us understanding. I pray that you would help us to learn the things that you want to teach us today. God, I pray that you would uh, use this time just to help us grow further in love with you. That we would be further committed to you today. That the gospel would advance right here, right now. God, I pray that you help us to put the distractions out of our mind, that we could just lean in, and that you would do a work in our hearts today. 
God, we ask this in your holy and precious name. Amen. So if you remember our introduction from last week, we kind of gave a long introduction to the book of Philippians. And if you remember, Paul was sitting in Rome and the Philippian church that he had started 10 or 11 years prior to him being in prison in Rome had a close relationship with him. There was a kinship. There was a, a fellowship between Paul and the Philippian church. And so when the Philippian church heard that Paul was in prison, they, be, they became concerned for his welfare. They became concerned about their friend. And so what they did is they took, they collected an offering and said, hey, let's gather some resources so we can send him a gift. And, and, and so they sent a guy by the name of Epaphroditus. And they said, hey, we want you to come and take this gift. We want you to go and give it to Paul. We want you to see how Paul is doing. Check on him. Check on his welfare. And this letter is in response to them sending this man to check on him. And you kind of anticipate that the first thing he's going to say is, is, here's how I'm doing. You know, here's how they're treating me. You know, those guards, those guards are jerks and they're, they're beating me and they're, they're stealing my stuff. Or, or maybe, you know, Paul, are you hungry? No, I'm not hungry. They're, they're taking good care of me. I'm, I'm warm. I have blankets. You're kind of expecting Paul to, to say, here's how it's going. Here's what's happening. But instead, Paul answers, and, and this is his answer in verse 12 to how he's doing. He says, I want you to know, brothers, I want you to know. That what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. Doesn't deal with any of his circumstances. Doesn't deal with, with, with how his health is doing. Doesn't deal with how they're taking care of him. He deals strictly with the idea that his circumstances have led to the advancement of the gospel. He says these circumstances are not, have not hindered the mission of, of spreading the gospel. By gospel, what he means is he means the, the preaching of Jesus, the death, the resurrection, and the present lordship of Jesus Christ. He's saying, he's saying, what's happened to me has advanced the gospel. So people's faith, they're growing deeper in love with Jesus. And more people are coming to learn about Jesus. This is what the advancement of the gospel means. And Paul, what he's going to do is he gives two examples of how the gospel has advanced because of his suffering. First, he says that the gospel advanced to people who don't yet know Christ. This is what he says in verse 12 and 13. He says, I want you to know that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. So that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. See, this imperial guard, depending on what your Bible version you use, it might be called the palace guard. Or the Praetorian Guard. The Praetorian Guard consisted of 9,000 hand-picked cream-of-the-crop soldiers. They were given special duties. They were given double pay. They were given good pensions. These were special uh, soldiers in the Roman army. And one of their duties of these special imperial guard was to be chained to very specific uh, prisoners, such as Paul. So every six hours, there would be a new guard who would be chained hand in hand to Paul, right next to him for six hours. And what would have been very clear to those guards, what would have been very clear to them, was Paul was not some ordinary prisoner. See, an ordinary prisoner, they would have sat, they would have, they would have complained about their circumstances. 
They would have protested their innocence. They would have said, this is unjust. I've done nothing wrong. I don't deserve to be here. The normal prisoner, they would have been gauging their chances of trying to get into court and what their chances are when they get into the courtroom before the judge. But Paul was not an ordinary prisoner. And Paul spent his time talking about this Jesus. About this, about this Jesus who had been crucified on a cross, but had miraculously risen from the dead. Paul spent his time talking about how this resurrected Jesus would not only be our judge at the last day, but this resurrected Jesus was our only hope of being accepted by God, by trusting in this Jesus. And the whole imperial guard would have heard of the testimony that Paul had. And they would have known this man, the reason he's in here is because he believes that this Jesus has, has died for him. They believe, they, they, they heard that this Paul, this is what he was here for, was because he lived the gospel and he proclaimed the gospel. So the entire imperial guard would have learned either from Paul himself or from the other guards saying, hey, this is what this guy is all about. So first, we see the gospel advanced for those who don't know Jesus. But second, Paul says that the gospel has advanced for those who already know Jesus. He says in verse 14, he says, And most of the prisoners, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. See, there's this idea, I don't know if you've ever heard of it, that vision leaks. You ever heard this term, vision leaks? When you have somebody who, leaves, who lives with such passion, with such vision, with such purpose, that it's hard not to, to, to take some of that on yourself. It's kind of like it spills over and you want some of what they have because they're so passionate about what they're doing. Some of the other Christians were a little bit more timid. We're a little bit more shy. Maybe they were a little embarrassed about Jesus. Maybe they were a little afraid of what others would think if they publicly confessed and actually lived their life for Christ. But when they saw Paul's courage, when they saw Paul's courage, especially the courage that Paul displayed, when he stayed faithful and he stayed vocal to the cause of Christ while he's sitting in prison, facing a potential execution. When they saw that courage from Paul, they themselves took on some of that courage and became more bold in their stand for Christ. So, pastor, theologian by the name of D.A. Carson, and he, he tells a specific story of how this actually played out. Some of you know the story of missionary Jim Elliott, missionary Jim Elliott, missionary in the 1950s. Jim and four other missionaries, they were called by God to move to the jungles of Ecuador. And they were going to attempt to reach an uncivilized Indian tribe known as the Alcas with the message of Jesus Christ. And so these five missionaries, they moved to Ecuador and they began three years of preparation to reach this specific uncivilized Indian tribe. And after three years, they say, finally, we're ready. We're ready to go and do this. And they move to a place close to this Indian tribe. And they're there for six days of, of, of trying to, to start a relationship with these, with, these, with, with these Indian tribe. 
And what happened six days into living next to them, and the, the Indian tribe sent a group of warriors who came and killed those missionaries with a spear. And what D.A. Carson shares about this story is all five of these missionaries had gone through training at Wheaton College, which is a Christian uh, liberal arts school. They learned how to be missionaries. They learned about missions and prepared for their mission field at Wheaton College. And what happened after these missionaries were killed is Wheaton College saw an influx of new people joining their missions program and graduating their missions program because of the courage that they took from those five missionaries who were willing to give everything for the cause of Christ. It's kind of like vision leaks. They saw the courage of those missionaries. They said, you know what? I want to have that kind of courage. Despite the good things that had occurred because of his prison imprisonment. These are good things. The gospel has gone further to those who don't know Christ. The gospel has encouraged, his, his, his imprisonment has encouraged those who already know Christ to be more bold for Christ. And those are good things, but not only good things happen because of Paul's imprisonment, there's also some bad things that happened. This is what Paul says in verse 15. He says, Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am here for the defense of the gospel. He's saying there's some people who get it. They understand why I'm here, and they're going to continue to preach Christ. But here he says in verse 17, The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to inflict me in my imprisonment. Those are some very sick motives to preach the gospel. He says there are some Christians that are doing this right. They're preaching Christ out of love and goodwill for people. But there's another group of Christians with sick and impure motives. They are preaching Christ from envy and rivalry, from selfish ambition, and in an attempt to, to inflict pain upon Paul while he's in prison. See, what this comes down to is really comes down to jealousy. Paul was successful as a missionary. He's possibly the greatest missionary that ever lived. He was more popular than the other Christian preachers. He was, he was more successful than the other Christian pastors. He had a bigger church. He sold more books. He had more people reading his, 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 his blog. He had more people that were listening to his podcast. And the other Christian preachers became a little bit jealous. And when Paul became in prison, they thought, this is our opportunity and so they used this opportunity to magnify their own ministry and begin to put Paul down. Hey, if Paul's such a great guy, then why is he sitting in prison? Paul's in jail and I'm out here free. That means I'm a little bit better than Paul. Paul's got something wrong with him, which is why he's in jail. So come and follow me because I'm a little bit better than Paul is. These rivals, to Paul, they oppose him for personal reasons, and use Paul's imprisonment for their own agendas to magnify themselves. Their preaching of the gospel then is motivated by selfish ambition. So the question for us has got to be, all right, well, well, that's what happened to Paul. How does this, how does this, what does this mean? And how is this supposed to teach us how we can have joy in our suffering? There's three things, though. There's three things we need to see that Paul's trying to teach us. First thing that Paul wants to teach us, 
and to show us is that we are not alone. We have to remember in our suffering that we are not alone. See, what happens is when we begin to struggle, when we begin to suffer, when we go through hard times, we begin to feel like we are all alone. We, we, we even begin to cut ourselves off from people around us because they just, they won't understand what I'm going through. You know, this is so unique to me and nobody understands me. And I don't want to have to try and explain it to everybody. And so we begin to cut ourselves off from people and we begin to feel very alone. In fact, we often feel like God has left us all alone, which is why we're going through this hardship in the first place. But you see, we got to remember what Paul taught us last week. Remember that when Paul wrote to the Philippians, he said, no, no matter what's happening in your life, no matter what's hardship Paul or anybody else is going through, he says in chapter 1, verse 6, he says that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. See, when we become a Christian and we surrender into a relationship with Jesus, God begins this good work inside of us and he never stops working to bring it to completion. Despite our hardships, despite our struggles, despite our suffering, God never leaves you. See, we worship a Savior. We worship a Savior who knows what it's like to suffer. Jesus was abandoned by every one of his close friends. Not one of them stood with him through the difficult time of suffering. He was wrongly accused before the judge, and he was wrongly convicted for something he had not done. He was beaten to the point that his face would have been nearly unrecognizable. He endured the shame of a public execution. He endured the shame of the cross. And perhaps his greatest suffering was the moment that God, his father, turned his back and forsook Jesus on the cross. Remember the words of Jesus on the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Yeah, we have a Savior who knows what it's like to suffer. And so in turn, he gives us the promises that his death bought for us. He gives us a promise of Hebrews chapter 13, where God says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. He gives us the promise of Matthew 28 when he says, And behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. You see, when we struggle, the temptation is to feel like we're all alone, that we're, we're alone in our suffering. And God would say, no, you're never alone. You are not alone. You have a God who gave up his only begotten son because of the love that he has for you. Red and yellow, black and white, we are precious in his sight. So the first thing we have to do is remember, no matter what suffering you're going through, no matter what struggle you have, you are not alone. Second thing that Paul is going to teach us to do is to look for God's hand in our circumstances. See, this is what happens for us when we struggle, when we start to suffer is we kind of get this, this tunnel vision where all we can think about, all we can see is that circumstance right in front of us. 
whatever it is, the hardship. And this becomes all we focus on is I've got this huge weight in front of me. I've got all this going on and you just feel so sorry for yourself. And what we have to learn to do is we have to learn to step back, to remove ourselves out of the situation, to take our emotions out of the situation and look at the picture in a different light. I mean, if we remember the story of David and Goliath, you remember that story, King Saul and all the soldiers, they're out front ready to battle for 40 days and they see Goliath across the way. The Goliath is this big, strong, ugly giant. They're warrior for the enemies, for the Philistines. And for 40 days, King Saul and all of those soldiers are there and all they see is Goliath in front of them. That's all they see, that big, hairy, difficult, hard thing in front of them. And there's no way they can, they can beat him. And, and they're just, that's all their focus is on. But you remember the shepherd boy, David. He shows up to bring his brothers who are soldiers, who are afraid of Goliath. He shows up to bring them lunch. And sure, he sees Goliath in front of him. He just sees God so much more. Sure, there's an obstacle in front of me, but I've got a greater God who's bigger than this. Who's bigger than this Goliath. My God is ten times bigger than this problem, this difficulty, this thing in front of me. See, one of the things that we often miss in our modern society is we limit the sovereignty of God. We limit the scope of what we believe God can do. So we think, you know, God doesn't have power over everything. So what God does is God just responds to our struggle and our suffering. He doesn't really control anything. He just responds to the hardships in our lives. But listen, God's word teaches us something very different. God's word teaches us that God works not merely in spite of our difficult circumstances, but God works through our difficult circumstances. God works through adverse circumstances. So you remember Paul? Paul is chained to a guard 24-7. He's got a guard there to keep watch over him. And no doubt you've got to anticipate with a guard right next to him, chained side by side, you've got to anticipate Paul thinking, man, this guy's got to be an elect person. Because there's no way that God would put him chained next to me if he's not meant to find Jesus, because I'm going to do my dandest to teach him all about Jesus and to share Christ with this guy who has nowhere else to go. I have a captive audience. Some of you know what it's like to be chained up just like Paul. Maybe metaphorically, though. You might feel chained to your job. You've got no way out, no hope. Say at mom, stay at home, mom, you might feel chained to your house. Some of you feel chained to horrible physical conditions. And you might say, God, God, why am I chained here? And this is when you have to step back. You have to remove yourself from the situation. You have to take your emotions out of it and look for God's hand in your situation. Because Paul knew that even though he was chained, even though he was in prison, Paul knew that God was still working. Paul knew that there was no, there is no chance 
There is no by chance I'm here. There is no accident that I'm here. God, Paul knew the providence of God. The providence of God is what chained Paul to these guards. And he was going to be faithful in those moments. We said earlier, Paul was not just an ordinary prisoner. And just like you and I, we are not to be ordinary prisoners either. In your job, in your family, in your sickness, you're in a situation where, where, where God is bringing people into your world. God is bringing people into your life and you are given an opportunity to speak of God, to suffer like Jesus, to demonstrate the difference that God makes in the life of somebody who is hurting. You just have to step back and look for God's hand in your life because it's there. Third thing that Paul teaches us about having joy in our suffering, this is the last thing, is Paul's going to teach us to keep the main thing the main thing. Because remember that group that was so sick and perverted and were trying to preach Christ so they could uh, hurt Paul while he was in prison? I mean, no doubt this group of people would have rammed Paul's name into the mud. They would have said all sorts of of bad things about Paul. No doubt they would have belittled him and, and, and his name. And Paul, he had every reason to feel down about himself. I mean, this was the greatest missionary uh, who possibly ever lived, who had the the strongest passion to know Christ and to make Christ known. Paul had more knowledge in his little pinky than all of the other enemies of his had all together. This was Paul. And here he is in prison with people speaking ill will of him. You can imagine him feeling down about himself. You can imagine the depression and the frustration that would have come over him. But Paul refused to have a pity party. There was no, why me, from Paul. Instead, his response is verse 18. In response to these people saying these things about him, he says, what then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Paul understood that as a Christian, not just as a missionary or a church planner or a pastor, as a Christian, Jesus and the advancement of the gospel, both in our lives and the lives of others, is to be our main thing. That is to be our primary focus. Our primary motivation is the advancement of the gospel. And Paul's example is so clear to us that we are to put the advancement of the gospel at the center of every one of our aspirations so that our own comfort, our own bruised feelings, our own reputations, our own misunderstood motives, all of these things are insignificant in comparison with the advancement of the gospel. The win in life isn't getting out of jail. The win in life isn't a good reputation. The win in life is the advancement of of the gospel. As Christians, we are called to put the advancement of the gospel at the center of our aspirations, at the center of what we desire. What are your desires? What are your aspirations? To make money? To get married? To travel? To see your grandchildren grow up? To find a new job? To retire early? 
to sit on the beaches of a Caribbean island? None of those things are, are bad things. None of those are to be despised. But the question is whether or not those aspirations become so consuming that the central aspiration of your life that is supposed to be Christ is squeezed off. And that becomes a side thing. That becomes a peripheral. That becomes something that is second best to whatever it is. No, all those things are good, but they're second, first and foremost, to Christ and the gospel being advanced in our lives and in the lives of others. See, I'll just be honest. This last year was a tough year for me. Very tough year. And during that time, in those couple of months, I had tunnel vision. Complete tunnel vision. Focused on myself. I pitied myself. I fell into depression. I had sleepless nights for months where I would lay awake in bed, not being able to sleep, full of anxiety. And I try all these things. God, God help me. God help me. And I was just stuck there. And it lasted for months. This lasted for months. Led to the point where I was doubting God's call of my life. God, you have nothing for me. God, I'm just, I'm wasteful. I'm wasting your resources. I'm wasting my life. And then in August, we had a baptism service here. And we had a summer intern, Jason. He was up front. He was interviewing these people who were about to get baptized. Story after story after story of people whose lives have been affected by Jesus. Of the gospel becoming real and cemented in people's hearts and in their lives. Of people who have given their, their lives to Jesus Christ and placed their faith in him as their savior. And I had to step back. I had to step back and see the gospel being advanced. People knowing Christ and making Christ known. And my son was one of those who got baptized that day. And it stopped me in my tracks. Because no more could I focus on myself. No more could I focus and pity myself. And my reputation and my career. And all those things I became concerned about. Because that's not what it was about. It was about Jesus. About him being made known. About lives being changed. And this is the win. This is the win for us. Is that when God would say, I know you're going through a hardship, but I have a purpose behind it. Because I want the gospel to be advanced. The gospel then is a great question and a great, great challenge for us. Is the gospel first and foremost in your life and in our church? Because life is going to have its up and downs for every one of us. We're going to go through those seasons of suffering, of difficulty. Every one of us, it is a reality. There will be times where we feel metaphorically chained to the circumstances in life. When we feel misunderstood, we feel misaligned, we feel ignored, we feel spitefully used. But if the gospel is first and foremost in our lives then we will be able to say exactly what Paul said. What then? 
only that in every way, whether in pretense or truth, Christ is proclaimed. And in that, I rejoice. Would you pray with me? God, I'm so thankful to be a part of a church that makes the gospel the priority. I'm thankful to be a church that is serious about the advancement of the gospel in our own lives as well as in the lives of others. And God, it is, it is my desire, it is my heart, God, that we would see more people come to know Christ. That we would see us as a group continue to make Christ known. That Christ, you would transform us in here today. That God, you would transform our community. Not because of Restoration Church, not because we're awesome, but because of the gospel. Because of Jesus' life and his death on the cross and his resurrection. And the fact that we know he is sitting on the right hand of God today preparing a place for us. God, I pray that you would allow your spirit to comfort us right now. God, I know suffering is such a reality. I know there are some who are suffering right now. Unbearable. Things that we can only imagine. God, I pray that your comfort would be on them. God, I pray that you would remind them that they are not alone. That there is a Savior who's walking alongside them. Who's given us the promise, I will never leave you nor forsake you. I will never leave you nor forsake you. God, I pray for those that they would be able to take a step back and be able to see your hand in their life, that you are working through this, that you are putting people there for a reason. And that, God, that they would take their focus off of themselves and look for how you are involved. And God, most importantly, I pray, God, that you would help us to keep the main thing the main thing. God, that you would allow us to repent for making anything else primary. All those things are good. We should pursue a a career. We should pursue retirement. We should pursue our family. We should pursue marriage. But those things are all second to Christ and the gospel. God, I pray that you would help us to repent of the times that we place anything else on the top of that throne. Because, God, you're the one that belongs there. The advancement of your gospel is what belongs there. And I pray that we would be a people who keep the main thing the main thing. And that when we go through this suffering, that we can find that time to rejoice. Because we know you are at work, both in us and through us. We have the opportunity this morning to respond to God's word this morning through communion. Jesus instituted communion on the night that he was betrayed. He said, this broken bread represents my broken body on the cross. And he said, this this cup of juice, it represents this new covenant uh, between God and people through the shedding of Jesus' blood for forgiveness of sins. Paul describes communion as an act of worship, a way that we remember Jesus and his sacrificial death. 
Because of that, Paul, Paul in Second and First Corinthians instructs us that prior to partaking of communion, we are to examine our lives. And we are to confess any known sin before we partake. And I want to encourage you today, as you think about suffering, as you think about the joy of suffering, we have a Savior who suffered beyond comparison for you and I so that we can have a relationship with Him, so we can have that promise that He will never leave us nor forsake us. And as we have this coming uh, response song, my prayer for you is that you would just spend some time in, in gratitude, in prayer, thanking Him for the sacrifice, for the suffering He endured so that we can have that promise that He will never leave us nor forsake us, that He is with us always to the end of the age. God, I love you so much. I'm thankful, God, that you don't leave us alone in our struggle and in our suffering. That, God, you have a purpose and you have a plan. That, God, you don't work just in spite of our difficulties, but, God, you work through them to help us love you more so others can see you in our lives. God, I pray that you would just live that out right here in our lives. Thank you so much for this opportunity to celebrate communion, God. Just remember the sacrifice you made for us. God, we ask this in your holy and precious name. Amen.